This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk traffic. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I'm Jason Kong, and I have the pleasure, as always, of being here with Mary Lucas, of course, from Transitions Life Care. Mary, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Braving the weather. It's nice and hot and, you know, just summer. Summer Summer is indeed here. And (laughs) the good thing about this is that we're in a nice air-conditioned studio, and we we intend to keep it that way. Yes. We're looking forward to that. Also looking forward to our program today. And this may sound like something that we just recently did, but it's not. Uh, We spoke with a a Debbie Weiss a few weeks back. We're talking to a different Debbie Weiss, who's also an author, and we're very excited to discuss her book with her and her journey as well. Again, this is Debbie Weiss. She's an author and former lawyer. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm really excited about today's interview and talking about transitioning midlife, especially after losing your spouse. I don't want to share the whole story, but before we dive in more present day and and where you are now, let's talk a little bit about your journey. Your, Your husband passed away. Can you talk about your time as a caregiver and kind of give some of the background to our listeners before we dive into your book a little bit? Sure. Um, well, I knew my late husband since I was seven, and he was 11. Wow. Uh, We grew up together as family friends, and we started dating um, when I was a senior in high school. He was a senior in college at UC Berkeley, an engineering major. Uh, We went to my senior prom, and we were together ever since. Wow. And uh, we were happy. I went to law school. I became an attorney, and then I retired at 40. And at 50, yeah, when I was almost, yeah, I was 49, um, he, well, yeah, he, he passed. Uh, four years before that, he came home in 2009 and told me he'd, he'd been diagnosed with cancer, metastasized male breast, and, which is rare. Rare, yeah. Um, we had, it's really rare, yeah. We had a few good years, and he started to really succumb to the cancer in, I would say, probably mid-2012. And he passed in April of, of 2013. Wow. I'm sorry, April of, April, yeah, yeah, April then. That is a very long journey as a caregiver. And, and also, wow, your sweet, your high school sweetheart, that's, you know, rare and you don't hear about that very often. Um, what are some of the lessons you learned on your journey as a caregiver over such a long period of time? Well, it wasn't terribly long because he, he did pretty well on his own until about the year before he passed. The last year was super hard because he was in denial. Mm. So he thought he was getting better, but, but he wasn't. So I really had to work with him. Um, I mean, I was trying to work with him to get him to accept reality. He was getting worse, and he was saying, no, I'm fine. Just let me keep working. He was working from home from a wheelchair. And... I think the lessons I learned, one would have been to be more proactive. Mm. Um, When he was in denial, I guess in some ways I was hoping for the best. You know, I'd been with him since I was 17, and I really should have looked at this more objectively 
and talked to his healthcare people and said, look, that's what he's telling me, but this is what I need to know more and I need to know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't get the kind of outside care I think we needed. I believe in retrospect, you know, the hospital offered a, a, a home nurse and um, wound care and pay, later palliative care, which he never thought he needed. And I, again, I should have been more proactive and more assertive about getting more services because it was just me. Mm-hmm. And I was really scared that I was making everything worse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he thought he was getting better. And if I'd known that there was nothing that would have made things worse, that this is this is what it was, he was on this path and there was nothing that could be done, I would have been a lot less stressed and just kind of let him live out his end as he wanted, which was working. He was he was a, he was a wonderful man, but a workaholic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he was the tech guy on a Quicken at Intuit. Um, so he was he was pretty driven. Mm-hmm. Um, and then. Ultimately, at the end, when everything was over, it would have been not to blame myself so much. When he passed, I had a tremendous amount of guilt. As a caregiver or and, and things that you wish you had done differently or, or talk to us a little bit about that. I know that guilt is a lot of uh, is something that a lot of caregivers feel both before and after the passing of their loved one. So I want to dig into that a little bit. Well, I felt guilt originally because I didn't care for him as well as I thought I I should, although I'm not a nurse and and caring for someone in that state, I mean, I did the best I could, but I got angry too, because it was just me Mm -hmm. and he shut out his parents and he shut out other people who could have helped and he turned down care, uh, the, you know, home care. I finally said, basically, you know, we are getting some people in to, Mm -hmm. to help with this. I can't, I can't do everything. And, you know, he was a, I mean, I, I I couldn't lift him. I couldn't move him. Uh, sometimes he'd fall. We'd have to have, you know, the EMT emergency folks come and lift him up. That was really scary. And I got angry sometimes. And it's in the book. That was really hard. So when he was gone, I was very guilty. And it was like, well, what kind of a life do I deserve after that? Hmm. Yeah, that's a lot to think about and take on and 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 process. He was very young. You both were young when he passed, which makes you not the stereotypical image of what uh, someone may think of as a widower. In the aftermath of his loss, what was that like, and where did you lean to as a new widow? Yeah, when he passed, I was 49, um, and I'd never been on my own before. I was very lonely and isolated um i one thing that did help was i went for i went to grief therapy mm-hmm. which i leaned towards and that was very good um ultimately since we led pretty isolated lives we had no kids um not a lot of close friends i started to just kind of join some different kinds of groups just to get out of the house mm-hmm. and just be around people that was you know around six months probably after he'd gone, uh, once I could kind of get myself out the door looking reasonably presentable <laughs> um, and, you know, speak it, talk in a way that wasn't absolutely frightening. Um, but, and then, you know, I also had kind of an inappropriate relationship. I, I wound up uh, dating somebody way too soon. But mm-hmm. again, I was kind of alone all the time. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's I'm, that's something I, I feel like m- many would probably think about and how to fill that space. Are there resources that you found or that you would suggest for those who are in the same position that you were in? Is there anything that helped you move to the next phase? I, I follow, I, I, this is random and maybe some listeners are, or, or you have heard of, um, there was a young woman who had uh cancer and she had uh, her husband started a TikTok to and it's crazy TikTok right um to share her journey to show people what her um what her last years of life looked like and she passed um a couple weeks ago now and I I saw on the way in this morning I I saw on his social media he posted him a picture of weights at the gym this morning and he said I'm starting Mm -hmm. my I'm starting my routine again um, and hmm. this was the first time all of his posts since she has passed ha- have been very much remembering her. And so when he posted this today mm-hmm. and I was driving in thinking about our show, is there a routine that you found yourself shifting to, like going to the gym or how do you get back on that routine and, and how did you make that shift? Well, some things were very easy. I mean, it's really basic. I just started walking again. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been a big walker. And I lived in a nice suburban town, which had a pedestrian trail, so I would go walk and see the same people and greet them and you know, smile at the children or pet the dogs, and that helped <laughs> to be out in humanity. Um, I joined, one thing that also helped was I joined a yoga studio. Um, I, I went through a couple to find one that felt like a fit, and that was really good because, again, that's a routine. Um, you go, there's a class, there's a set time. It doesn't matter who's there or not. Um, I would do, I shifted to evening yoga because that made the evening shorter. You know, at 5.30, when normally I'd have dinner with George, that was my husband, um, I could go be with a friendly group of folks mm-hmm. and get some exercise in and kind of cut the evening down. And, you know, from there, I met a group of middle-aged women around my age who also were doing yoga. And so there was kind of a friendly group to join. Uh, some were single, mostly divorced. One was also a widow. So that was nice to have mm-hmm. someone who'd, who'd been there. Um, so that helped. This is odd, but uh, my late husband, he was a tech guy, so he had a sports car. And I joined uh, a car club. I was actually going to sell Fine. the car, but they were so nice on the phone, I thought, oh, I'll join them. <laughs> and, you know, they did uh, weekend breakfast. So I would get up. It's, it was really early, like 6.30, and go drive five, 10 minutes on these empty highways to go eat with these folks. Oh. And then there was usually an event afterwards, and they were nice. Oh, and that's again, fine. It was something to do. Yeah, you know, it was someone to. And from there, later, I got to, I got into hiking. Um, this is when I was in in much better shape. But those were weekend hikes. I'm still friends with those folks um, through meetups. And you know, weekends when I was single and lonely, I would just hike hike with people. That's awesome. Co-ed group, nice people, and um, well, my big passion, you probably gathered, was writing. So I had belonged to a writing class before he passed. It was mostly older folks, retirees, and I, I rejoined that um, ultimately. And my writing was terrible because I was really angry about his death, and all my writing was pretty cathartic about being a widow, but people put up with it. And um, that was that was good, too, because these were folks I'd known some before George had passed, and that was something to do again. And I made, I made friends from that, from that class. Again, people who I'm really close friends with still today. That's great. And taking those steps are really certainly important. We're speaking with Debbie Weiss. She's author of the book Available As Is, A Midlife Widow's Search for Love. And she's also a former 
lawyer as well. We're going to continue our conversation with Debbie and hear more about her story right after this. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF with your hosts, Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas on the line. We have Debbie Weiss here with us. She is author of the book, Available As Is, A Midlife Widow's Search for Love. She's also a former lawyer. And Mary, we're talking about uh, Debbie's story here, and we've kind of gone over um, her losing her husband at a very early age, mm-hmm. and now she's trying to find herself. They were together since she was 17 years old, so she had never been alone before, and now we're we're in this new phase of life. Exactly. I I want to touch on the former lawyer part. Uh, Debbie, at what point in your journey did you decide to move from your career in law to publishing? That's such a wild shift. And when did you decide to write your book? Mm-hmm. Let's see. Um, I was a lawyer right out of college. I went straight through to law school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was I'm the yuppie generation, so we were real big on, you know, moving forward. I watched a lot of L.A. law growing up, and uh, I did that until I was 40, um, so about a, about a lot, 12 years, and I burned out on it. I was just, it just wasn't really resonating. I worked for a very traditional kind of firm. I was an insurance coverage lawyer, which involves interpreting insurance policies, which is about, about as exciting as it sounds. Mm-hmm. And uh, I burned out. My husband, George, was wonderful. He was working very hard. He said, both of us don't have to do this. We didn't have kids or a lot of expenses, so we said, just quit. And I always said I'd go back, but I didn't. And then I just you know, dabbled in writing for a while, but I got more serious about it after he passed. Um, you know, that, that was 10 years later, well, nine years later, and I was, um, had joined a, a writing class. Uh, through Akalani's Adult Education, this wonderful creative writing class in, in Lafayette, California. Wow. <clears throat> and um, from there, I met some wonderful people who invited me to join their writing group, and a bunch of them were writing books. And I just started to write stuff about being widowed, and I started a blog, and I started to submit stuff for publication, um, essays and things. Um, and that, that kind of worked. I got some stuff published, and that, that made me feel better about writing. And it also made me feel less alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of my most important important experience for me was I was a Huffington Post blogger when they had that platform. And I wrote a thing about, you know, I yelled at my dying husband and I still feel guilty. <laughs> and it was, it was hard for me to, yeah, my first article was worse. It was, I was a dating addict for XO James, but this was a little deeper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this one was about was how hard it was and I yelled and how I felt so guilty and when that went out, I remember that night, within like a couple hours, I had 80 comments or three, you know, maybe three hours. I had 90 comments wow. from people saying, you know, that they that they too had caregiver guilt or that they'd known people who did or that, you know, I just did the best I could. And that was my husband being in denial. It was an impossible situation. 
and that I did deserve to go on with my life. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of amazing. Um, I felt like I I wasn't alone in this. Mm -hmm. And the title of your book, Available As Is, talk to us about why that title. Oh, well, (laughs) I love that. Um, That was because the book, um, it does deal with losing my husband and the grief, but it also deals with dating and try and midlife transitions and trying to create a new life after my loss at including dating. Um, although ultimately finding myself and available as is to me refers to older singles because we're kind of like older real estate homes. We're available as is we have our quirks, you know, we have our, um, cracks in the plaster or, um, furniture that's still in the house, baggage, or, you know, imperfect, but also, you know, the beauty that comes from a, from maybe from a beautiful lived-in residence, mm-hmm. or can be someplace really terrible you'd never want to live, as I discovered with many of my dating experiences, <laughs> but that is why. <laughs> I, I'm scared to know, um, as I, I have also been in the online dating world, and it's harsh out there. Uh, how long yeah. after your husband passed did you decide to start dating again, and did you ever feel any guilt there in making that that decision? Um, I, it was 14 months, so a little over a year, uh, which seemed reasonable. It was ultimately a little too soon for me because I was still pretty vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I think it's better to do that when your new self as a single person, as a, a widowed person has formed. But I was eight, it was 14 months. You know, I felt like I was just kind of going forward and experimenting. Um, ultimately, I did feel some guilt later on that surprised me you know i when i went when i started i didn't think i would but at one point i would feel a little guilt like well i don't i don't really deserve a new life i don't deserve a new person um and that was something i had to work on definitely like i said it's so hard out there online dating and scary you just you don't know so you know you're talking to complete strangers um and and you don't know much about them for you know there it's like taking a jump. What was your experience like when you first got onto the apps or the websites? Where did you start? And for the listeners out there that are thinking about making this jump, what do you suggest to them? Well, I started on JDate, which is a, a dating site for Jewish people. And I wasn't, I am Jewish. I wasn't set that I needed another Jewish person, but I thought it would be, it was a smaller site and I thought it would be less um, <clears throat> intimidating and scary than some of the larger ones and that people might, you know, I might get some people, get less crazy people. (laughs) And ultimately as I did that, and then I moved on to some larger sites because there weren't that many people on that site within my uh, geographical area and my interests. um, I really found that a a lot of, uh, I can only speak to men, middle-aged men were really living in the past. You know, I just found a lot of guys out there who were just kind of depressed. They hadn't processed their prior relationships. These were mostly divorced folks. I met at the time at very few widowed folk. Um, and they were just kind of negative. And somehow the feminism to them meant that they didn't have to have good manners. I didn't quite get that. <laughs> the hookup culture seemed to make them think that they could try to have sex without putting much effort into much else. Mm-hmm. And I, I really found a pretty depressed pool. I, I came out of this almost a misandrist. 
Did you find that when you shared that you were a widow, did you find that there was a stereotype there that other people were like, you know, reacted to or, or there was a different response when you shared your story? I did. I did. Um, yeah. You know, it, it fell into a few camps, you know, um, none of them very good, honestly. Um, a couple good people I can speak to, but in general, there was kind of a sense of, oh, she's so naive, you know, and mm-hmm. oh, you can't expect to have, find anything like your husband. He treated you like a princess, but, you know, that's not going to happen again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and also just kind of a sense of, well, the world's so different, girl to girl. You don't know that. I mean, I'm a widow, but I'm not a moron, you know, and I found that somewhat. So I found it pretty disheartening. You know, it's like, I mean, I can still tell this guy's a cheapskate who can't open a door, you know, don't, don't, don't put it on me that I, because I'd had a good marriage. So, uh, you know, basically I found the response is patronizing. I can imagine um, it's it is rough out there. Um, it, it's something that I, I I've done it and I wished and hope to never do it again. Um, it's just precisely yes. <laughs> you know, you quickly before we go to break and come back, um, you you briefly mentioned being yourself at first and focusing on yourself, and I think that's such an important thing that taking the time to look inward and and be yourself first. Um, that's something that I have worked really hard on personally. And I think that that's, um, something very important for, uh, you and others who are in, who have been or in your shoes. Um, I, I applaud you on that. And I, I think that that's a, um, it's a hard thing to do. It it was hard. I mean, what helped me and, you know, I talked earlier about the groups I joined was, was to try to kind of follow my passion. Um, you know, I was lucky I didn't have to go back to work, but I was so isolated and I was trying to say, well, how am I going to create a life? How am mm-hmm. I going to put things together? And I thought dating and finding a partner um, would be a part of that, but it really wasn't. Um, what I really had to do was kind of figure out what to do on my own. And for that, again, I went to passions I'd had and tried to find new ones mm-hmm. and just kind of tried to be with other people. You know, I, I say this in a writing, I'd cliche, but kind of the idea of, you know, figuring out what I like to do and used to like to do and then how to do that with other folks, with mm-hmm. other people. Um, ultimately, I went back to school and got my master's degree in, in writing. I got an MFA. Oh, awesome. Um, when I was 56. And that was cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's that is really cool. We're speaking with Debbie Weiss. She's author of the book, Available As Is, A Midlife Widow's Search for Love. And she's also a former lawyer as well. She's sharing her caregiving story. We do have to take a short break, but we've got more with Debbie right after this. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. If you have questions for the show, you can email agingmatters at transitionslifecare.org. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas, and we are speaking with 
Debbie Weiss, who's author of the book, Available As Is, A Midlife Widow's Search for Love. She's also a former lawyer. We've been discussing her caregiving journey, losing her husband at an early age. Uh, She was 49 when he passed away, and they had been together since she was 17. So life certainly uh, was a lot different. And Debbie, you mentioned that you had never been alone before. Essentially, you know, you kind of grew up with your late husband, George, but we've gone over your career change, your transition into becoming an author and your venture into the world of online (laughs) dating, which uh, uh, sounds like it was an experience in and of itself. But now we want to get into present day a little bit. Yes, absolutely. I think I, I have a burning question. Ultimately, have you found a new partner? Did you meet online? How did you meet? I do have a new partner. Um, we've been together just over five years. Wow. Um, we moved in together two years ago, and that was wonderful. I moved to a new home and finally sold the house I'd lived in for 27 years with George. Wow. Wow. And that, that, was, that was long overdue. Moved to an area I just love. I always put a plug in for beautiful Benicia in Northern California. It's a small town on the water, and it's lovely here. Yeah, that um, sounds nice. Jason and I were shaking our heads, like, "Yep, we could we could do that. Yeah, we could move." Let we'll, we'll, we'll us know move. if there's a, an opening available, and we'll, we'll make some plans. Well, my new partner is a realtor, but I won't go into that. Now. <laughs> <laughs> um, we did meet online. To answer your question, we did. We met on a site called. Okay, Cupid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I call it stupid Cupid. But and, and I, he was the first one I'd, you know, I mean, he was just so different from anybody else I'd met. But we did meet online. Um, one of my profile pictures, I was wearing uh, a pair of tennis shoes that had skulls on them, and I got a, a a message instead of all the ones that said "great legs" or the impressive "Hey baby," or the guys who, you know submitted something along the lines of where do you plan to be in 10 years, you know, and what's your ethos. (laughs) I got something that said, um, I I like your tennis shoes. Are those vans with skulls on them? Yes, yes, they were. And then he said, well, I want to get a pair. And, you know, we moved to texting and he showed me a couple options for tennis shoes and kind of went from there. That is so funny. Where was your first date, if you don't mind me asking? Well, our very first date was just a coffee shop. Uh, where I lived in Danville at the time. But our second, our real date was 12 hours. Wow. And we, I know. And we were in Marin. We drove um, here in Northern California. He picked me up uh, at my house, and we went uh, down the Marin coastline to a beach. It was Memorial Day, so it was crowded. <laughs> and we stopped at his favorite restaurants and had different things to eat. And I remember there was a really terrible, uh, like, Cajun band with a washboard at one of those places. <laughs> Any memories? And then we stopped finally at our favorite, at this restaurant that he loved for a fancy dinner. And I was, you know, in my shorts, been in the car all day. And it was a, yeah, it was a 12-hour date driving and, and eating down the Marin coastline. That sounds awesome. Uh, what a great, great start. And so excited to hear that five years later, here you are. What was it like moving out of the house you had been in for so long? I'm sure that there was a lot of memories and um, a lot of emotion yeah. that, that went into that move. There was. Um, you know, it was very um, liberating mm-hmm. for me. It was really liberating. You know, my old home... Uh, 
George had chosen, and we'd chosen it when both of us were working really hard, so we picked a place, just a simple tract home, which we could, what we could afford, it, which was fine, and it was very nice, but, you know, we picked a place that was didn't need any maintenance because we were both working all the time, <laughs> and George kind of had picked it, so it, it wasn't my dream house or anything, and and I, had a, I still had a lot of stuff, you know, I hadn't realized, I thought I'd cleared out a lot of things that weren't me anymore but it wasn't until I moved and I had to look at do I want to see this on the other side and I'm moving in with someone else but let's make sure this is our house not just my house that I really got rid of the end of everything you Mm -hmm. know a lot of things on the wall that you know you don't think about this picture on the wall and then it was like oh but that's not me I don't really even like that Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. So it was really good for me to kind of clear out a lot of memories, a lot of stuff that I was kind of hanging on to. It almost felt like the last of the guilt, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also, again, it's my generation. You know, I was raised by Depression-era folk, and, and I'm not. But it's always this sense of, can I throw this out? Oh, God, no, no, you can't. That was expensive. It doesn't matter if you like it. It's that it was expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was very nice to say, I don't want to see this again. This isn't me. Um, you know, it was, it was really great. Um, I, and it was also help, really helpful for me to see that I was kind of less attached to all that stuff than I, than I thought I was. That is, that is, uh, very insightful for many people. I, I remember when my grandparents were kind of stuck in the, we don't want to leave the home that, you know, all of my uncles and my dad grew up in. And, um, it was just, it was so hard. And I know there's a lot of people kind of stuck in that, that's, place and especially if they're they've lost a spouse and you're living there and um and going through that so um very insightful Uh, as you continue in the life life after how are you still putting your self-care first well um i i do actually um you know lately um i'm turning 60 so i have aches and pains my self-care has involved kind of spending on wellness for me, acupuncture, chiropractor, um, more massages, things that I enjoy and that make me feel better and healthier because I've got aches and pains and I won't go into this too much menopause lady stuff, post-menopausal lady stuff and, you know, deciding that's okay that, you know, to look at kind of self, my self-care budget, like an entertainment budget, you know, mm-hmm, you would spend mm-hmm. X amount on a meal, but maybe you wouldn't, at least I wasn't raised to spend that on care for myself. And also, um, I'm doing yoga teacher training, which oh, is fine. my latest kind of passion. Yeah. And that's amazing. So I was following that passion and investing in that, even though I will probably never teach yoga. I am very much a klutz. My fantasy is to teach a class called Yoga for Klutzes. Um, I would join that class. I would definitely fall into that category. <laughs> yeah, I, I am. But so it was, it was, you know, deciding to follow that passion um, is is definitely is self care for me. And then when I'm not doing it, not doing the homework probably as much as some of the younger participants. I, I don't. I mean, I'm just doing this to deepen my own practice. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't like a, a really going to be a business for me. So it's also self-care is also just enjoying time with my partner and letting my body recuperate in between the classes, which are Saturdays and Sundays sitting on the floor sometimes for five hours Ooh. and lots of extra yoga. So yeah, uh, so it's both taking a yoga teacher training and also kind of limiting it uh, not to take it too seriously. 
I love that. As we kind of finish out our interview here, what would you say the biggest lesson you've learned so far being a widow? Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, the biggest lesson for me is that, uh, for me, having been with uh, the same person for 32 years, was that you have to find a new self after being half of a couple. Uh, that, you know, I was very used to being half a couple. So I was we, George like this, George like that, we do this. And it was very much having to kind of disregard opinions maybe or what I thought looked great and finding what worked for me on my own and having the patience to let that happen. Because I think for a lot of us, you're kind of forming a new self and there is no upside to this, but it is a chance to do what it is that you want and be who you want. And maybe that's sometimes hard to do for people, especially I think midlife women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's certainly a challenge. Debbie, if folks want to learn more about you or pick up your book, what's the best way to do that? Well, my book, <clears throat> available as is, is the easiest thing is it's on Amazon. Um, more about me. I am Debbie Weiss author. Um, apparently, there's another one out there, but I'm the, I'm the blonde one um, <laughs> where w- with the book available as is, which is right at the top of my website. So Debbie Weiss author is my website. Um, you can find me on Facebook as Debbie Weiss. I've pretty much stopped posting on my author page. And I'm also Debbie Weiss author on Instagram. If somebody wants to reach out, I'm Debbie Weiss on LinkedIn. I tried TikTok, but not for me. Um <laughs> And I, I think I do have a couple videos out there about how to date and, and grieve. And um, I think that's about it. Again, the, the book's on Amazon, and I always put in a plug for local bookstores because my local bookstore here in Benicia was amazing to me with my book. Wonderful. That's a great suggestion. Again, the book is available as is. A Midlife Widow's Search for Love by Debbie Weiss. Her website is Debbie Weiss author.com debbieweissauthor.com debbie thank you so much for being so generous with your time here and for sharing your story we certainly appreciate you doing that oh thank you mary and jason i really appreciate this too thank you thank you and i'll I'll, i I won't take it personally but i'm going to retire as a washboard player in my cajun (laughs) band because uh i I, I don't want to upset anyone else i'm just kidding i'm not in a cajun band but (laughs) Debbie, thank you again. We appreciate it. We're taking a quick break, but we'll be back with more. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas. And Mary, we can't go a full show without mentioning your pets. You are uh, a foster parent for many, many dogs. And this is something I don't know how you have the time to do, given your your current (laughs) duties, but I know it is a passion of yours. And we often bring this up because um, 
pets can often be um, extremely helpful and, and maybe not necessarily thought of for those who maybe have finished a caregiving journey mm-hmm. or who are in, in the beginning stages of one. Absolutely. I, For those of you who may remember or, or don't know, um, I fostered a dog back in January, Waylon, um, Waylon Jennings. Uh, Waylon, uh, he is a Bernadoodle, so Bernie's Mountain Dog and Poodle Mix. Um, he was from a backyard breeder that was um, having, who had a hoarding situation. He was one of 50 dogs that was living outside. He had about five pounds of matted hair, um, and he had been living in his own filth uh, in a crate outside his entire life. Um, and he was about one when I got him, and he had never met humans, never been inside uh, a house. Um, he was uh, extremely emaciated. He had heartworm, Lyme disease, other tick-borne diseases. He had intestinal parasites. Um, he was in really bad shape. He had infections on his face. Um, and when we shaved him, his whole body was covered in ticks. Um, it was just, he was in horrible condition. Um, but the good news about all of this is um, he has recovered very well. And a, a couple of months after getting him and starting to heal and, and go through the process, I realized his temperament was just so calm and approachable. And I don't know how this dog trust humans. I really don't, um, coming from the situation he was in. And he has just been so sweet. And so I was thinking, you know, maybe you could be a therapy dog. Uh, and no, I don't have the time for this. Um, but I decided to, to dedicate time to, to making it happen and training Whalen to be a therapy dog, which I, I get a lot of questions about it now. So I wanted to talk about it a little bit. It's not really hard um, to, if you have a dog that has a great demeanor, is approachable, um, is not super hyper, doesn't lick a lot, you can't be a licker, um, can't be a jumper. Um, it's it's really not hard if, it, if you have those, um, if your dog, it kind of falls into that. You don't have to have a certain breed. Um, and actually, most therapy dogs are rescue dogs, uh, including Waylon. Um, and, and the dogs that I tested Waylon with were also therapy dogs or, or rescue dogs as well. Um, you don't know, have to know commands or tricks even. You don't have to perform tricks like fetch. You don't really have to have a shake or anything like that. You just have to listen to your handler. Um, so Waylon just has to be able to listen to me and take commands well. Um, and, um, and, and he does that. And so I, I started training him. We were going to Lowe's Home Improvement and and, you know, different hardware stores. And there's a lot of stores that actually allow dogs. So we were just out all the time uh, after work and walking on the leash, practicing not pulling, practicing sitting when I tell him to, um, approaching people calmly and and waiting to be approached. Um, and Waylon uh, was checking all the boxes. And so we tested a couple weeks ago for the therapy dog test. We, we work with Alliance of Therapy Dogs, which is a national organization. Um, and the test, they have testers all over. And the tester met us at um, out, out in public with her therapy dog. And um, part of the therapy dog training, you have to be comfortable around other dogs. And they can't approach each other. He can't want to play while he is um, in therapy dog mode. So, um, and Waylon does very good at that. So we met with her therapy dog and side by side and he passed his test and we're super excited. Um, and so I, I, there, there's a huge need for therapy dogs out there. Um, and I want to, um, 
just promote that. And if you have extra time on your hands and you think you have a dog um, that might be eligible to be a therapy dog, check out Alliance of Therapy Dogs. That's just one of the organizations. There's plenty of others. Um, it's a great way to spend extra free time you have and helping others. Um, it's I've met a lot of really cool people. We had our first visits uh, at a nursing home here in a dementia unit recently. And um, and then we also did the hospice home at Transitions, and um, they were really special. The hospice home, I met more families in Wayland, spent some time with some families that were grieving, which was really special to me because both my grandparents been at the hospice home, and I've benefited from the therapy dogs that were there. Um, but the dementia unit was awesome. Um, there was this woman who um, – she was not verbal and she wasn't picking up her head um, or really making eye contact, but her husband was with her and he was trying to communicate with her and she wasn't really communicating. And Waylon, um, we walked up to them and Waylon sat there in front of her and he was like, look, it's a dog. And he was trying to get her to, to see the dog and she wouldn't pick up her head. And finally she put her hand out and and looked at Waylon, picked up her head and looked at Waylon, and it, it brought tears to my eyes and to her husband's eyes. I mean, she she immediately connected with Waylon, um, and was petting him and grabbing his ears, and it was just a really sweet moment. And she didn't say anything, and I don't, I think she was uh, pretty nonverbal, uh, just outside of um, you know that moment as well. Um, but it was something really special and connected with her, and um, you can really make a difference. Um, and I want to also clarify the difference in therapy and service dogs. A service dog is training a dog to do a specific task um, for somebody who needs it. So they have PTSD dogs or, you know, dogs that can um, help with diabetes or seizures and, and recognize those things. And therapy dogs are more for volunteering in, in um, different facilities, hospitals, nursing homes, hospice homes. You can even go to schools um, or the community events. There's a lot of different places that therapy dogs come into um, play. Um, so just my pitch, you don't, your therapy dog most of the time has to be about a year old. Um, but there's plenty of videos out there that you can take a look at all the training that's needed and, um, but it's really not that hard. So I work with a Alliance of therapy dogs, but there's plenty of others and I definitely, um, suggest checking it out. Um, it's been a lot of fun and I'm excited to get whaling out more. And also my pitch to rescue dogs, our shelters are full. Um, and there are awesome rescue dogs out there. And don't think that you can't get a purebred dog from a rescue because you can. Waylon is one of those fancy doodles. And I hate, <laughs> I hate when people say he's a doodle. And I'm like, yeah, but let me show, let me show you where he came from. Um, and uh, I love doodles. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I'm very proud of Waylon and where he's come from and, and the, the progress he's made over the last, uh, you know, six, eight months, eight months. Um, it's been a lot of work, but he's been, um, he's been good. And for those who are interested in pursuing this training, can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, is it mm -hmm. something where you're watching videos online and then training with the dog? Or are you dropping the dog off, like, kind of like a doggy daycare, and then they come back and they're a full therapy dog? How, how, how does it work? <laughs> you can. There are definitely programs where you can drop them off and, and pick them up. Um, I will say with those programs, it's a little bit harder because you're the handler, um, and you have to be the one that is controlling the dog. Um, so it's, it's hard to make that connection when someone else is training your dog. Um, and, and so I think it is easier to, if you can, and if you are able to, to do the training yourself, um, if you go out on, 
um, out on the internet and on the interwebs, um, and you look up training or Alliance of Therapy Dogs, for example, they have um, on their website under join and members, they have a test a video, and you can see the full test and what that looks like. So you do the full test at first, and it does, um, they, your dog doesn't have to be perfect. You can correct them in the test, and that is totally acceptable. They just can't be shy they can't be jumping on others and they can't pull on their leash. That's like the main things. Um, it's great. They have to be able to sit and stay in a place for a few minutes as well. So to, to be able to just listen to you, approach humans, not jumping, not pulling on a leash, no licking, um, and interaction with dogs kind of to a minimum. You're not allowed to be playing with other dogs while you're there. But there are videos out on the internet of what the test looks like. And there's also, they have like checklist of everything uh, that you will be tested on. So I just went and practiced those things over and over and over again. Um, and then you do the initial test, and then there are two observation sessions. And if you pass those, then you uh, move on. They can do additional observations as needed, but they the observations, they take you out. And if you've passed the test, they take you out, and you actually do visits. Um, and they help kind of train you and guide you if you're doing something wrong or you're not holding the head the right way or whatever it may be. Um, they kind of correct you there. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not you did this wrong, you can always correct your dog um, and and kind of shift their behavior during the test or during an observation. That's totally acceptable. So it's not, it's not too hard if you have a dog that has a good demeanor. That's wonderful. And for those who are maybe looking for a way to volunteer and who maybe are passionate about their pets and their dogs, this is a wonderful way to combine the two. And if you want to see a, a, a touching video of Waylon, check out Canine Inch Tales on Instagram. Uh, it's a very nice video that she did showing Waylon's transformation and also his graduation as a, <laughs> a therapy dog. It's cool to see Canine Inch Tales on Instagram if you want to see Mary's page there. Well, we are out of time for today. Don't forget, you can catch this episode and past episodes as podcasts on WPTF.com. Click on the podcast button. There you'll find the Aging Matters section, and you can re-listen to this episode as well as past episodes as well. We've got to get out of here. We're out of time. On behalf of Mary Lucas, I'm Jason Kong, and you've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Have a great day. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.